welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week I'm delighted to get the chance to chat with Dr. Giovanni Favo. Dr. Favo is a psychiatrist and professor of clinical psychology at the University of Bologna in Italy. He is also a clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Buffalo School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. Since 1992, he has been the editor-in-chief of the peer-reviewed medical journal Psychotherapy and Psychosomatics. Giovanni has authored more than 500 scientific papers and is known for researching the adverse effects of antidepressant drugs. In a 1994 editorial, he argued that many of his fellow psychiatrists were too hesitant to question whether a given psychiatric treatment was more harmful than it was helpful. Dr. Favre recently released his latest book entitled Discontinuing Antidepressant Medications, published by Oxford University Press. The book is designed to be a guide for clinicians who want to help patients withdraw from antidepressants. I was keen to ask Dr. Farva about the book and to explore some of the concepts, including novel psychotherapeutic approaches to antidepressant withdrawal. Dr. Farva, thank you so much for joining me uh, on the podcast today. Uh, to begin with, could I ask you to tell us a little bit about your background um, and how it was in particular you became interested in issues around the difficulties that some people have when they want to stop antidepressant drugs? Yes, uh... Uh, see, uh, unlike uh, most uh, of the researchers today, I uh, actually evaluate and personally treat uh, quite a number of patients, and I've always been doing that. Uh, and I think that's, this is very, very important uh, uh, to get a, a, a good understanding of what's uh, going on. So uh, in the early 90s, uh, uh, in, in my practice, uh, I started seeing patients uh, having problems uh, discontinuing antidepressant drugs. And I must say that uh, I had uh, a very extensive experience in um, discontinuing antidepressants uh, with some studies we did, but these were tricyclics. Uh, the first generation antidepressants. So I was having these problems and I saw that uh, the literature was not really addressing these issues. Uh, and um, back in uh, 94, uh, I wrote uh, an editorial in the journal. I added the psychotherapy and psychosomatics, uh, raising some questions. Uh, uh, about tolerance issues uh, in uh, antidepressant drugs. And I must say that the freedom I enjoy as an editor was very valuable uh, because it sparked quite uh, a debate uh, in terms of, uh, of antidepressants. So the journal became a forum for hosting papers uh, dealing uh, with withdrawal uh, syndromes after antidepressants or during uh, tapering. I kept on seeing and assessing patients, and uh, I noticed at a certain point, uh, uh, that was about a decade ago, that uh, unlike uh, uh, some uh, patients' associations and uh, uh, other organizations such as yours, uh, 
the thing was going to be to pass unnoticed. I mean, there were fewer and fewer papers. So we decided to do two systematic r- reviews on, uh, on SSRI and uh, SNRI. These were the first uh, reviews. And uh, uh, Michael Hengartner, in an uh, editorial uh, in another journal, commented that these uh, reviews came after nearly uh, 200 uh, uh, systematic reviews on the benefits of antidepressant uh, drugs. So two against uh, 200. That is uh, the ratio we are actually uh, addressing. And this had a profound impact uh, because uh, from that time on, uh, the term withdrawal was uh, uh, has become more and more uh, accepted uh, and um, used uh, in the literature. So my knowledge comes from uh, uh, being a researcher and, and being a clinician. Before we come on to talk about the book, I think you're perhaps quite unique in, in having a really, really good grounding and basis in psychopharmacology but also having an understanding of how psychotherapy might sit alongside that so i'm sure we'll we'll come along to talk about that but that that kind of struck me as quite important in this work yes there are uh, very few people around <laughs> who, <laughs> who have uh, <clears throat> a research background and clinical background in both uh, areas uh, i th- that was uh, quite common uh, let's say, in the old days, but uh, nowadays, uh, I'll say very, very few people. I'd like to move on to talk about the book now, if that's okay. And the book's entitled Discontinuing Antidepressant Medications, and it's published by Oxford University Press. And uh, I'm so glad to see this book uh, is is due to be released, because as you said yourself, there's a, a dearth of good quality material. In the book, as you just mentioned, you identify that in the 90s, um, the pharmaceutical industry planned to extend the use of SSRI and SNRI drugs beyond depression. And they took steps to popularize the term discontinuation as opposed to withdrawal. And so, yet here we are, we're three decades later, we still have the chemical imbalance being talked of. Uh, we still have doctors reducing drug dosages by, say, 50% over two weeks or, or very quickly and saying that SSRIs are not drugs of dependence. So I just wondered what your thoughts were on how this kind of mythology about antidepressants not being drugs of dependence, how has that persisted for so long? Well, it's not surprising. You see, uh, in the 90s, uh, the pharmaceutical companies uh, were planning to extend uh, the use of antidepressants uh, to anxiety disorders, uh, which uh, in most of the cases uh, is a, a, an unfortunate practice, as I uh, write uh, in the book. For doing this, uh, uh, they had to sweep away any reference uh, to dependence, uh, tolerance, uh, uh, problems. And the basic assumption uh, was the fact uh, that, okay, you shouldn't be uh, too abrupt, too quick in discontinuing antidepressant, but if you go on slowly, uh, no problem is going to arise. Of course, any practicing clinician uh, knew that this was not true, that uh, uh, you could have uh, patients uh, uh, with a minimal uh, decrease in dosage uh, presenting the symptoms 
The problem you see, and you capture a very complicated issue <laughs> at the beginning of, uh, of the interview, is that not all patients uh, develop withdrawal symptoms. And this creates uh, uh, some misunderstanding. But the big pharma, and this is a very sad uh, story in uh, academic psychiatry and psychopharmacology, most of the uh, researchers uh, obey to the sort of uh, switch into discontinuation syndrome. As I said before, until 2015, when uh, Gishina, one of the most important psychopharmacologists today, and our group uh, came out uh, with the idea discontinuation problems uh, uh, are no longer acceptable. Uh, in terms of terminology. We should speak of withdrawal, as we speak of withdrawal with benzodiazepines, with antipsychotics, and with uh, any other uh, psychotropic uh, drug. So let's say that uh, uh, this is going on in terms of research uh, and the journals, but uh, in the meanwhile, the spectacular achievements of propaganda uh, stay. No one has been knocking on the door of the primary care physician saying, okay, look, uh, our view of these issues has changed. And so most of the clinicians are simply unaware of what, uh, what has been going, uh, going on in, the, in recent years. And this is why I wrote this book. I mean, to say, okay, uh, we try to write something which may help the clinician in a way, and even though it's a very, very technical book, as, uh, as you might have uh, uh, seen, also um, patients uh, and for giving perspective. The book absolutely clearly delineates the, um, I, I, I think, the kind of um, clinician or patient-centered view of how difficult withdrawal might be compared to perhaps the more sanitized version that you read in academic journals which typically says it's it's two weeks it's mild it's transient and it, if if it persists longer than that it's almost certainly relapse not withdrawal so i think the book does a a fantastic job of splitting apart the mythology and looking at the reality yes your point uh, thank you for uh, raising this is is very is very bad not only that, uh, that these are discontinuation syndromes Admit, this means that you're going too fast and you have to slow down. But if there is withdrawal, uh, you should uh, uh, think of a relapse and uh, continue the medication again. By a commercial view viewpoint, this is perfect. This means that uh, you can have these people taking antidepressant drugs uh, uh, forever. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. It's it's a market which uh, kind of populates itself almost, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So in the book, I was also interested. Um, you, you talk about the behavioural toxicity of psychotropic drugs, and and I wondered if you could help me understand this concept. This is a very uh, important uh, concept, and uh, we owe this concept uh, to two uh, psychopharmacologists, uh, uh, the Boston area. Uh, Alberto Di Mascio and uh, uh, Dick Shader. 
And these were leading uh, psychopharmacologists. I mean, Dick Shader still is a, a leading psychopharmacologist who were publishing their papers in, in the most important uh, journals. Uh, and they elaborated this concept, uh, which they were able to publish only in a journal called uh, Connecticut Medicine. If you have people who regularly publish in the New England Journal of Medicine, and then you find this paper in Connecticut Medicine, I mean, a journal which is very hard to find, that means that that paper is very, very hard. Uh, and then uh, may undermine uh, a lot of ground uh, of the pharmaceutical industry. I'm sim simply uh, renewing, applying their concept to uh, the field of uh, antidepressant tapering and discontinuation. A medication that is used at uh, normal average doses may become toxic to the patient. And this toxicity expresses itself uh, uh, with phenomena such as loss of clinical effect. We have a patient who's doing well on antidepressant and uh, after a while taking the medication regularly, the antidepressant uh, no longer works. If you try to increase the, the dosage, uh, uh, it may help for a little while, so loss of clinical effect, uh, um, hypomanic episodes, that is, uh, the, 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 the medication is really working uh, too much and, uh, and brings the patient to a state of hypomania or mania is, is what is in the DSM term of bipolar II disorder, but also paradoxical effect. Uh, that is, uh, the antidepressant makes you more uh, depressed. Uh, in the book, I discuss about the relationship between venlafaxine and uh, apathy. Uh, this is an example of, uh, of a paradoxical uh, effect. And uh, uh, resistance, the fact that uh, these patients uh, become uh, resistant either to the same medication when it's prescribed again or uh, to other uh, medication. Withdrawal is part of behavioral toxicity. And see, my view uh, is uh, quite different from that of other investigators in the field. Because as a clinician, I know that all these manifestations of behavioral toxicity are related. What I mean is that uh, it's likely that you have uh, uh, two or three or even four of these manifestations together. And this means that there is the same mechanism. That's really helpful. And, and it's hugely important, that concept, isn't it? Because if you're a patient at the moment, say, and you go to your doctor and you say, I've, I've tried this antidepressant and it was working for a time, but then it, it didn't stop to work, you, you know, you, you might get a label of treatment resistant in that the doctor might blame you as the patient for you not responding to treatment, where actually what this might well be is a physical drug effect 
caused by taking the drug itself so it, it you can't really blame the patient if they haven't responded it's uh, it's an effect of the drug isn't it not an effect of the, the patient's response to treatment is that right 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 uh, you see it it's because uh, in uh, today's medicine uh, we have banned any uh, iatrogenic thinking i mean <laughs> we have been very well educated uh, by by big pharma so there is this uh, uh, this idea uh, that the patient has to be blamed because he's not taking the medication regularly and really it's a, it's a very deceptive way of uh, looking at things uh, because uh, there is one blind part uh, and uh, the iatrogenic part uh, is, is totally blind. If you look at uh, the psychiatric literature for papers that discuss about iatrogenic disorders, uh, probably one, two percent, that is uh, the, the current trend. So if no one has trained you to look at these uh, issues, uh, it's, it's quite hard to, to have a balanced view of uh, the clinical problems. If it's okay, Giovanni, I'd like to move on to the to kind of the part of the book that talks about responding to antidepressant withdrawal. And, you know, I have to say it's it's um it's a mine of really, really helpful information, you know, and certainly really, really quite comprehensive in, in how it, it uh, talks about responding to some of the difficulties that people have. So what can we say, if anything, about um the rate of tapering that might be helpful for people thinking about coming off antidepressants because there's such disparity in in the advice given out there so professionals might choose to taper by a 50 percent reduction every two weeks but online advice might be say a 10 percent reduction per month which is quite slow and can generate extremely long tapers so i i just wondered you know your your clinical experience clearly informed your writing in the book so i i wondered what approach you typically adopt when you're helping people? The first thing uh, is that psychiatrists uh, uh, neglect uh, something that is common practice in other fields of medicine, uh, diabetology, uh, cardiology, endocrinology, which is shared decision. Psychiatrists have uh, a totally obsolete paternalistic approach. I mean, uh, let me decide what, what, what is good for you. But uh, it's a situation where you have to confront the patient uh, with uh, different uh, possibilities. So I practice a shared decision. So the first point uh, uh, is to have the idea that there is no simple solution that applies to all patients. I've uh, criticized <laughs> evidence-based medicine and, uh, and uh, uh, in this approach, it applies to the average patient. Unfortunately, I never see the average patient in my practice. They only seem to exist in studies, don't they? Never in the real world. <laughs> and no average patient. I see the most, uh, the most difficult cases uh, uh, and so on. So uh, the point is this. When, when I have to discuss uh, with the patient uh, what to do, I explain. I mean, first of all, we have uh, to embrace uh, a wider approach in terms of behavioral toxicity. Uh, because 
the longer you keep the patient on a medication, the higher the toxicity you provoke. So um, I say, okay, the antidepressant, uh, which was maybe very good at the beginning, has become sort of toxic to you and it's creating this problem and so on. How are we going to proceed? So uh, we can do very slowly, if, if you wish, but uh, be aware. By doing this, we prolong uh, your exposure to the antidepressant. Or we can do it in a gradual but faster way. And here comes uh, my position, uh, and I realize that is uh, primarily based on my practice and my experience, uh, which is biased clinical experience, no matter how extensive it is. It's probably one of the most extensive in the world, but uh, it's biased. So my uh, bias, uh, which I didn't have at the beginning, is that uh, it's very difficult to discontinue an antidepressant uh, uh, to do deep prescribing if you don't do some additional prescribing, if you don't use some medications and psychotherapy. So when I, when I discuss with the patient about this, uh, uh, I'd say that most, most of the patient, 90% of the patient uh, respond, please get this medication out of my body as soon as you can. And then we, we, continue, we continue with that. But uh, um, a basic uh, problem, which is not only in this field, but in psychiatry and in medicine today, is to believe uh, there is a procedure we should apply to all patients. Uh, clinical practice uh, shows that it's not possible. We live in a society that runs on guidelines, don't we? Everyone, everybody wants a guideline, and yet this this is not a, a guideline-focused activity. It's a person-centered activity, isn't it? Uh, right. And then be, behind a patient, uh, there is a personal history, a treatment history, a unique combination of medication. Uh, if I have a patient who has been treated, uh, uh, I'm thinking of the worst antidepressants, uh, paroxetine and velafaxine, uh, and maybe he's also taking triazolam for sleeping <laughs> here, is different from another patient uh, who's not been taking these medications. So uh, it's very uh, personalized. Let's not forget that personalized medicine is not simply genetics, as, uh, but is, is really uh, getting into the uh, uh, person's personal history. Thank you, Giovanni. And again, I was interested to read in the book, you, you caution against reinstating an antidepressant if withdrawal symptoms have already occurred. So I just wondered, you know, what your experience was, what, why that might exacerbate the problems the person's having. This was a suggestion that was uh, uh, made in, uh, in guidelines uh, and became quite popular. I mean, if the patient is experiencing withdrawal, go back to the the same medication. Of course, this does not solve anything and, and may uh, worsen the state of behavioral toxicity. But again, they want you to be 
uh, very narrow-minded and just thinking of certain symptoms and not uh, the general uh, course of, uh, of the disorder. So uh, this uh, idea, uh, go back to the same medication, uh, not necessarily <laughs> it will work again if you have discontinued the medication or switch to fluoxetine. These are not based on research evidence. These were simply uh, claims uh, that were made uh, and uh, key opinion leaders supported these claims and, and became popular. But there is no evidence whatsoever to support these strategies. I guess reinstatement might at best dampen down some symptoms, but it still leaves that person with a challenge of getting off at some further point in the future, doesn't it? Yeah, and it will certainly be worse <laughs> because, because you have prolonged uh, the exposure to the, uh, to the medication. This is a basic principle of toxicology. This is a strategy which uh, leads you to nowhere. And um, next, uh, um, you know, I think as we mentioned before, you know, the, the, the book is one of the few I've read that gives kind of equal importance to psychopharmacology and to psychotherapy. And it would be perhaps nice to talk about some of your approach to psychotherapy when you're helping people with um, dealing with antidepressant withdrawal and, and, and discontinuation. So um, in the later sections of the book, um, you talk about three elements of psychological therapy that you employ as, as part of your staging process. So there's explanatory therapy, therapy, um, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy and well-being therapy. So perhaps it would be nice if we could touch briefly on each part. So you, firstly, you write about the importance of explanatory therapy at, at the start of the process of withdrawal. So could you tell us about explanatory therapy, what, what it is, and, and why it's important as the first step in the process that you follow? Yes. Explanatory ther uh, therapy is a term and uh, an approach uh, which was uh, uh, introduced uh, uh, by a teacher of mine, Robert Kellner, for treating uh, hypochondriasis uh, and uh, bodily preoccupations. Uh, and this was uh, introduced uh, many uh, years ago. And I adapted this approach uh, to the uh, process of tapering and discontinuation of antidepressant drugs uh, in the sense that it's uh, extremely important for a patient to understand what is going on. And in the book, in the, the first chapter, I described the first patient who had a quite, quite uh, an acute withdrawal uh, reaction. And, and he asked me, what's going on here? Uh, and, and then I kept on asking myself, what's going on here? Because in those days, we're talking the mid-90s, there was no literature, nothing. And so we were really wandering the darkness. So uh, explanatory therapy means that uh, you have to explain to the patient what's going on, why you're doing uh, certain things, uh, uh, why you're adding, for instance, a medication. In the book, I've tried to put uh, some uh, uh, clinical histories and cases and uh, also mention something that uh, um, quite a lot of uh, uh, of patients use, it's like being in a tunnel. I mean, it's total darkness. Uh, you don't know what's going on and you, you don't see any way out. 
you don't understand how you got in. And so you need someone who can see you uh, out of the tunnel uh, and, uh, and, and tell you, okay, we are here, we're trying to, to go to a, uh, another place uh, and do uh, these things. Uh, so to have some sort of direction. So this is explanatory therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is, uh, of course, uh, very common. But something that uh, a lot of people forget uh, is the fact uh, that the psychotherapy is the most biological form of treatment that is available. Uh, and this is not a statement of mine. Uh, Harry Kandel, Nobel Prize of Medicine for Neuroscience, wrote a review on the biological effects of psychotherapy. I'm not questioning uh, at any rate uh, the importance of antidepressant drugs that I use, that I use in practice, but their effect vanish uh, when you stop them. Whereas uh, tendency of psychotherapy is for the effects to persist. Let me give you an example. Uh, someone, uh, early 20s, uh, anxiety disorder, uh, agoraphobia with panic attacks, was given uh, an SSRI. And the SSRI worked. Panic got better. Uh, avoidance uh, improved. What was the problem? Again, not in every patient, uh, is that when uh, this young person wanted to discontinue uh, and to get rid of this medication, and there are many examples in my book about this, uh, they simply couldn't do it. It was a, a nightmare. Let's assume that uh, this young person is among the lucky people who don't, who don't have withdrawal symptoms. Uh, by the way, this is uh, uh, really a total neglect, the waste of current research in psychiatry, uh, not addressing the biological aspects of withdrawal uh, and not giving us a clue why certain patients develop symptoms and others don't. So let's assume that this young patient is not having problem in no, no withdrawal with tapering and discontinuation. But 90% of cases, according to the literature, when you discontinue the medication, anxiety, agoraphobia, panic, we come back again. So what you have to do uh, is not simply deprescribing, which is a term uh, that I hate, really, <laughs> because it's so narrow-minded, but you have uh, to uh, perform an alternative prescribing. In this case, you have to treat uh, with cognitive behavioral methods uh, those anxiety disorders uh, that were present uh, at the beginning. If you don't do it, the patient is going at best to relapse and at worst to relapse, having a withdrawal symptoms with the course which has deteriorated over the years. And so we need uh, to prescribe psychotherapeutic approaches that deal with uh, the basic uh, symptoms. 
The third component is called well-being therapy, and this is a strategy that I developed over the years for increasing psychological uh, well-being. In the book, I mentioned the case of, of a colleague. I wanted to discontinue antidepressant because it was not necessary uh, at all. And she objected, I'm a weak person. I cannot uh, survive without antidepressant. This is again another spectacular achievement of propaganda uh, over these years. Uh, and, but there are a lot of people, I mean, physicians and their patients who believe that because they are inadequate, weak person, they could never make it without. So you need also some strategies, again, in a, an individualized uh, process uh, to address those uh, aspects uh, and to bring the strong points uh, that uh, any of us has inside to flourish. Uh, so it's not deprescribing, it's alternative prescribing through psychotherapy in this case. Yeah, thank you, Giovanni. I really like the focus on psychotherapy in the book because, you know, I know myself from personal experience that coming off antidepressants can be a physically turbulent time, but it can also be an emotionally very turbulent time as well. So if you take someone's antidepressant away without giving them, as you say, a support mechanism via another route and you tackle their these issues as they're coming up, then, you know, I think that's quite a difficult place for a person to be. So I really like the focus on psychotherapy. I, I mentioned that one of my teachers, uh, Robert Kellner, but I should mention uh, another of my teacher uh, as a medical student. I had the privilege of working uh, in the summer with George Engel in Rochester, New York. And I remember Engel uh, pointing to me uh, one thing. It was about a patient uh, we saw in a ward uh, and said, Giovanni, uh, remember, there is no difference between this orthopedic patient and the psychiatric patient. That was the biopsychosocial model in practice. They are both reacting with their body, their soul, their, <laughs> their mind uh, to certain uh, situations. And, and of course, <laughs> this is uh, uh, what, uh, what uh, I carried along. And this is why I've been trying to pursue both psychopharmacology and psychotherapy, because I'm an Anglo student. Um, so uh, um, in addition to, to psychotherapy, which, which we've talked about, um, could you talk also of utilizing clonazepam, a, a benzodiazepine, to help mitigate withdrawal symptoms? So um, I wonder what your observation was of using a benzodiazepine in this way, and, and, and do you taper that once the SSRI withdrawal symptoms have uh, eased or reduced themselves? Thank you for, uh, for uh, addressing this issue. Uh, in my practice, at a certain point, I became convinced that it's tremendously difficult uh, to get rid of antidepressants uh, uh, without uh, any other form of pharmacological support. And of course, if you switch to another antidepressant that, <laughs> so in terms of behavioral toxicity, you're going nowhere. You're making no progress. 
And I've been, uh, as, as I write in the book, uh, very much uh, influenced by uh, one of the most important uh, psychopharmacologists, uh, Guy Chouinard. And we discuss uh, uh, many times these issues. He suggested to me that uh, uh, we needed uh, 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 to associate uh, with the tapering and uh, discontinuation for some time an anti-epileptic drug. Uh, and I chose clonazepam for various reasons. I mean, the first, uh, because it has uh, very good uh, anti-anxiety properties. See, Chinard uh, did the first study on uh, alprazolam, but then he went on uh, and, and uh, he, <laughs> he sort of uh, concluded that, that this medication was giving a lot of dependence, so it was not good, and then introduced clonazepam uh, as uh, an alternative. Also because I, I have to deal with a lot of patients with anxiety disorders, I think that uh, clonazepam may help both uh, decreasing, not eliminating the symptomatology, the withdrawal symptomatology, that is new symptoms that appear, and the other uh, is that of uh, uh, decreasing uh, anxiety symptoms that, uh, uh, that may appear. So when we talk about uh, uh, benzodiazepines, uh, we make another common mistake. We talk about a class, a medication class, as if they were all the same. They are not. And we have clear-cut evidence that there are benzodiazepines, such as uh, I mentioned alprazolam, I could mention uh, triazolam, I could mention lorazepam, have very strong addicting properties. Uh, and there are benzodiazepines that uh, have very low dependence uh, uh, liability. And clonazepam, uh, and again, there is evidence uh, uh, about it is one of those. In my personal experience, uh, again, we talk about hundreds of cases uh, treated with uh, clonazepam, of course, with gradual tapering at the beginning, but I never, never had problems. So one should be very cautious about uh, benzodiazepines altogether, antidepressants <laughs> altogether. So uh, we're talking about different medication that belong to the same class. For people out there listening who haven't had access to the literature, you know, that there are many messages out there to try and make sense of. On the one hand, we're often told in simple terms that SSRIs, SNRI drugs are safe and effective and can be taken indefinitely or for long periods with no problems. On the other hand, when in-depth investigation is done such as that in your book, um, the problems with the, with the drugs are manifest and can be very serious for some. It, everything up to manic episodes, akathisia, increased risk of suicidal thinking. So how, is we, how can we as consumers kind of reconcile these two views of psychotropics? Uh, for a consumer, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. But let me uh, point uh, to a sort of similarity. Uh, and let me take the example of antibiotics. Okay. Of course, antibiotics are life-saving <laughs> medications, and <laughs> and one of the most important achievements of uh, medicine. 
but uh, they should be taken uh, when there are precise indications and generally not extended over a week or 10 days. You see, the, uh, the conclusion of my book is really, <laughs> is really something that go against uh, uh, all current indication is that antidepressant drugs are life-saving and important medication if you meet certain criteria for severity and persistence of depression. So limited to the most severe cases for the shortest possible time, which in case of antidepressant drugs is uh, no less than six months altogether if, if in realistic terms. And when you taper the medication, you have to introduce uh, uh, something else. Another position that uh, uh, I take, uh, uh, again, not a, a, a very popular uh, position, they should not be using anxiety disorders. Unless, of course, the only time where I may use them is uh, when you have anxiety associated with severe depressive disorder. But if I have to use a medication anxiety disorder, I use the benzodiazepines. They are far better, not all of them, as we discussed. So it's, uh, it's something that uh, we should acknowledge about uh, uh, all medications. Uh, in my journal, uh, in uh, a few years ago, we published a review on uh, long-term side effects of SSRI and SNRI, and it's just a devastating list. These are medications that are not good for long-term. That kind of goes back to something you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, that the the way that these drugs are um, sold, if you like, in terms of how they should be used. So if people believe that they've got a, a chemical imbalance or a broken brain or they're missing something that the antidepressants provide, then that kind of signals that they need them long term, doesn't it? But if we if we sell them or, or give them as if this is a temporary solution to help you over a particularly difficult or problematic time in your life, and they might help you over that with some psychotherapy alongside it, but they're not adding anything that you're deficient in or correcting any brain or abnormality Th those two conceptions are quite different aren't they yes you're doing explanatory therapy right now <laughs> okay <laughs> uh, yes this is what we need to to exchange uh, let me add this uh, that this book uh, um, actually uh, reflects um, a lot of things that i learned from patients i mean their insights, they, because uh, as Engel, uh, George Engel was teaching us, uh, medicine uh, is about interaction. Uh, it's not about technology only. Is uh, the patient uh, and the physician are um, part uh, of uh, of the same process, and this is what I try to I try to do in the book and uh, and and to see that. Uh, Okay, I may see things better than uh, the person who is uh, the tunnel, uh, but at the same time, I, I also have a lot of blind spots. Uh, I also have a lot of uncertainties. Uh, things may go one way or the other way. The important thing is to transmit 
the idea that I've got the experience, I've got the knowledge to address uh, different things that may happen during the course uh, of illness. Thank you. You've clearly put a great deal of time and effort with colleagues into the, the research that underpins the book. So what, what are your hopes now for how the book will be received or, or how it might uh, end up being used by people who go on to prescribe SSRIs and maybe go on to help people withdraw? Someone asked me recently, uh, it was, of course, a joke, do you think uh, that uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, are going to support uh, this book? Uh, and say, well, they might uh, buy all copies <laughs> to make it disappear. So I know, I know, I'm aware that when it's going to be released at the end of the month, I have a lot of people against me. And not only uh, those who are linked to pharmaceutical companies, but the book expresses some views uh, that uh, are not shared by a lot of colleagues. When in 94, I wrote the editorial, do antidepressants and anti-anxiety uh, medication increase chronicity in mood or anxiety disorders? Uh, that was in 94. Of course, I knew I was going to uh, uh, have a lot of uh, problems. When in the journal we publish uh, the first De David Healy's paper on uh, suicidal ideation and antidepressant uh, death analysis, I knew I was going to have a lot of problems. <laughs> and when we uh, publish uh, the uh, review on the systematic review on SSRI and, uh, and the editorial by Schrinar on uh, criteria, we thought, well, let, let's see what happens. And we did not expect that we were going to hit the literature to a point uh, that uh, the term discontinuation syndrome is um, almost no longer used. So what I hope uh, is the book and more than the book uh, uh, the ideas, uh, the uh, experiences, the messages, uh, uh, what the patients tell through me in the book uh, may get uh, a widespread uh, distribution. And people start uh, uh, thinking about uh, a lot of issues. Uh, I'd like to uh, mention uh, something funny. I, I was told that a physician who's uh, who has a very high position uh, in, uh, in a pharmaceutical industry and certainly a, an absolutely brilliant uh, pharmacologist, something he, he said about me. He said, okay, if Giovanni Fava spoke about psychotherapy, uh, oh, I'll be the first to come to listen to him. I mean, besides the way his self-therapy is absolutely fascinating. The problem is that uh, he discusses also about psychopharmacology. And uh, in a few minutes, it can uh, induce irreversible damages. And uh, what are these irreversible damages? People start thinking. People start using the clinical judgment. People start uh, wondering what's going on here. Is the way we're treating patients the right way? Or maybe there's something else 
we can do. My academic colleagues will ignore this book. Uh, I already know that because it would be embarrassing for them. I hope that uh, organizations like uh, Med in America or Surviving Antidepressants or other, they may spread, help spreading the word. But I'm optimistic because I saw that two articles in a small journal uh, were able to induce a lot uh, of changes. Of course, here we are talking about a different psychiatry a different psychiatric model. So mm, not, not, not something very, uh, very simple. I was going to ask you about that, that Giovanni. So the, the book does call for a revolution in our way of thinking, assessing and treating mood and anxiety disorders. And you, you, you call for this a different psychiatry. Do you, do you think that's actually possible without us somehow fundamentally rethinking the, relation, the relationship between psychiatry as a profession and the pharmaceutical manufacturers? Uh, it, I call it revolution because it actually needs uh, some drastic changes uh, in, in our way of looking at things. We need a different type of assessment. But the DSM, this diagnostic a statistical manual that uh, everyone uh, uses, uh, if we think about it, is uh, for patients who no longer exist. Uh, because the DSM is for patients who are drug-free. Okay, in my practice, 95% of the new patients I see are already taking psychotropic drugs. And these medications are changing the picture. The DSM does not consider this. So it's totally outdated. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a total... A uh, different approach uh, to the assessment of the patient and to uh, its treatment. But of course, uh, uh, <laughs> as any revolutionary approach, uh, I, I know that uh, I, I'm going to have uh, a, a rough time <laughs> in, in suggesting. But at the same time, it's really uh, more and more people may start thinking and reasoning and so on. So uh, let's say I'm, uh, I'm reasonably uh, optimistic that in the long run, don't ask me how long, certain <laughs> uh, of uh, these ideas will, uh, will come true. Let me close with uh, something uh, that, uh, that impressed me so much. And, and, and it's also a message for the patients, for the people uh, who have been left alone by official medicine and psychiatry. Because when you disregard major psychiatric uh, medical symptomatology, you're really deserting all, the, all, all these people. So uh, uh, many times I've been asked this question, shall I be back? to the way I was? Uh, my answer is, uh, is very simple. I hope not. This would be a disaster. You never go back. I mean, this is the basic idea. And we owe it that one of the most brilliant neuroscientists, Bruce McEwen at Rockefeller University, 
is known for his landmark studies on, uh, on neurons, and but uh, but he was also a, a big supporter of social neuroscience. And the point is that uh, recovery is a one-way street. You never go back to the situation. Uh, it's not that because you taper very slowly, then you go back to the point uh, where uh, you were before taking the drug. That's no longer possible. You can only go forward. Uh, at the same time, uh, taking as one patient uh, shared with me uh, recently, uh, I mean, it has been hell. But at the same time, uh, I understood so many things. I've grown so much, uh, I'm different, uh, that uh, I'm growing. So the message uh, is that uh, to go forward, to look at the future, but you need to build, you need to prescribe something different and not simply deprescribing. Okay, thank you for your questions, and I hope... Uh, that the book will uh, bring some helpful debate. Giovanni, thank you. I'm so grateful to you and your colleagues for all the effort that went into the book. And, you know, it, it is very detailed, it is very technical, but everything is described very clearly with very strong examples. And, you know, in terms of how this might this book might be used by people like me, by consumers, it's possible to read your book and become confident enough to start to have discussions with your doctors that might allow you to challenge some of their thinking. But from a perspective of someone that's read some really, really good quality research. So that's where I see value for someone like me, that it, it equips me with the kind of language and the kind of examples and the kind of research that I need to go and say to a doctor, maybe an antidepressant isn't the right thing for me. Maybe this would be a, a better approach for me, or maybe we should approach withdrawal this way. So I, I thank you so much for writing it and for all the effort that went into it yeah thank you for uh for this interview and space well i just want to thank giovanni so much for taking the time to chat for the podcast if you are interested in reading his new book it can be purchased from oxford university press by visiting the website www.oup.com forward slash academic and searching for discontinuing antidepressant medications. Either that or it is available from amazon.com in print or for Kindle devices. So thank you so much for listening and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.